0: Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Well, listen, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in chapters uh, in Genesis. We're going to go all the way from chapter 1 to 11 today. So I hope you brought your lunch. Uh, it's gonna be. We're gonna be here for a while. As Pastor Terry said, we're starting a brand new teaching series this morning that we're entitling "The Big Picture," and it is our goal as a church family to go through, to preach through all 66 books of the Bible. We plan to do this um, one. Sometimes it's gonna be one book at a time, a, a week. Other times like this in Genesis, we're just going through part of it and then Pastor Terry will go through the second part next week. Other times we might combine books, but our desire is to preach through all 66 books of the Bible. And the reason that we're taking the time to uh, this type of approach is because while it is beneficial, it's beneficial to go through books and passages verse by verse and line by line, but it's also, uh, there's an advantage to backing out of a passage so that you can see the big picture. And we want to see the big picture of God's Word, to see how God um, has had interactions with mankind over thousands of years and how this, this interaction points to one unified, true historical account and person whose name is Jesus. One of the things that we like to uh, say at, at our church is that Jesus is the hero of of the Bible, we want to, to show how everything within the Scriptures points us to Him, namely His cross, His burial, burial, His resurrection, and then His return. And preachers of the past have noted that there is this scarlet letter that runs through the Bible. That that it, in other words, if you cut the Bible anywhere, they they used to preach that. Uh, It will bleed with the blood of Jesus. That's what we want to see this morning as we're going through Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation. And so we plan to take maybe the next year. Uh, We don't know exactly how long this is going to take us to do this because um, we're going to also take some breaks uh, throughout the time to preach on other biblical topics. But we want to go through all 66 books and see the main themes of the Bible in them. And so today, as I've already said, we're going to be kicking off our series with the first eleven chapters of the book of Genesis, which was written by Moses, and he is credited for writing the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. So, uh, the word Genesis means literally means beginnings um, or origins. So, this is what we're subtitling uh, today's message: uh, the message of Genesis origins and um, how things came into being. So. In the book of Genesis, it contains origins, the origin of creation, the origin of mankind, the origin of marriage and the family, the origin of how sin entered into the world, and the origin of God's plan to deal with sin. It deals with the origin of government, the origin of nations, where did all the nations come from, and then zeroing in to one nation the nation of Israel, and carrying that theme all the way throughout the rest of the, of, of the, the Bible. And this morning, I uh, just so you'll know where I'm going, I plan to break um, the f- uh, first 11 chapters into four sections. And you can see them up here. Creation is chapters 1 and 2. Corruption is uh, chapters 3 and 4. Catastrophe, which is chapters 6 and 10 and Confusion, And so we've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and just jump into creation. If you're taking notes on the back of your weekly, you can fill in uh, the blanks here. But uh, creation, and what I want to point out here is God's perfect order. Let's look at verse 1. It says, uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it's been said on many occasions that if you can embrace verse 1, of the first book of the Bible, the first verse. If you can embrace this by faith, trusting that uh, God alone created everything by speaking, he created everything out of nothing. If you can accept that, then the rest of the Bible is gonna be easy for you to accept, uh, the miraculous works of God in the rest of the Bible. And so in chapters one and two, when God created the heavens and the earth, he spoke everything into existence in a perfect and orderly way. It's important to understand this. S- jumping straight out of the the first chapter, that God has an order, and He d- He does things a certain way for a certain purpose. Let's look at this. The six, the seven days, the six days of creation. I've got a, a slide here that shows the order in which things happened. And notice on day six, you've got lands and land animals and humans. God, when he created mankind, he did not create us first and then kind of hang us up in the air uh, or put us in the ocean and let us bob around until he finally got around to creating uh, dry land. God is a God of order, and his order is revealed throughout creation. We've seen this before in Romans 1.20. It says that for his invisible attributes, speaking of God, his invisible attributes... Namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since, look at this, the creation of the world and the things that have been made. And so this means that the point of creation is not creation. The point of creation isn't you. The point of creation is not me. The point of creation is God. And creation is meant to point to God, to reveal God. And that's, that's very important for us to understand just jumping out of the blocks. Uh, but look at this when it talks about us in verse 26. If you if you have your Bibles, jump down to chapter 1, verse 26. Look how what God does. It says, "'Then God said, "'Let us make man in our image after our likeness.'" And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Don't miss verse 27. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, when God said in in verse uh, 26 that, when he said, let us make man in our image, the orthodox, orthodox historical view is that the triune God of the universe, that's the eternal Father, the eternal Son, and the eternal Holy Spirit, they came together, they counseled together among themselves, and they said, let's make humans different than and of higher value than everything else in all of creation. That's important to understand that we, this is, sometimes it's hard for me to say this, but we are the pinnacle of God's creation. I like what John Piper says when he talks about why God created man. He said, why did God create man? To show God. He created little images so that we would talk and act and feel in a way that reveals God the way God is. That is why you exist. We were were created to be God's image bearers. And what it means to be an image bearer is means that you reflect the image of another. For example, there's this picture right here. This is a picture that uh, Kelly took of um, when we were out at the Grand Tetons in Wyoming. And as you can see, the water below is bearing the image of the mountains above. And I want you to think about this. If you remove the mountains, you remove the glory that the water is reflecting. And in a similar way, as God's image bearers, if you take God out of your life, if you reject God, if you remove God, you remove the glory that you and I were created to reflect as his representatives and being and uh, created in God's image is it has great implications because listen this is something we need to to grasp as as a church here uh, what what it means because regardless of our education regardless of your ethnicity regardless of your social standing even regardless of of how sinful a person is and as if you're been with us at Reach Life, we know that we all are sinful. We all need a Savior equally. But you know what I'm talking about, the sinful people. You know, that's not us, which it is. Okay, I should have kept going. Wasn't in my notes, yeah. All right, Uh, no matter what your social standing is and no matter what you contribute to society, um, because we bear the image of God, God himself has declared that we are valuable. We need to grasp that. That's why we must guard and uphold human life as being sacred, whether it's in the womb, whether we're in the prime of life and seem productive in this world, or whether we are in a state of mental and physical decline and deterioration. It doesn't matter where you're at in life. All human life, has worth, value, dignity, and is worthy of respect because of the Imago Dei, because of the image of God within us. In in chapter 2, after creating Adam from the dust of the ground and breathing into his nostrils the breath of life, it says in chapter 2, verse 15, that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. One prohibition was given to us, right? Eat everything but that. And, and six times during creation, during the six days of creation, at the end of the day, God's steps back and it says, and God saw that it was good. At the end of the sixth day, he steps back and he sees his reflection in all of creation and he says, it is very good. But then when we come to verse 18 of chapter two, it says this, then the Lord God said, it is not good. This is the first time in scripture that we see that phrase. It is not good that the man should be alone. Women, you should be saying amen to that. is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper. Now, most of us know that the helper that God creates is uh, Adam is a a biological woman by the name of Eve. And I want to just point out something here that that word helper there, it's uh, sometimes people, I think you can read that and you can feel like this is a demeaning title. Uh, You know, daddy's little helper or Adam's little helper, but that word helper is a word that God actually uses to describe himself. For example, uh, all throughout scripture, for example, in Psalm 146, verse 5, he says, Blessed is he whose help or helper, the exact same word, is the God of Jacob. And when Jesus is speaking of the Holy Spirit, what does he say in uh, John 14, 6? He said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And so the point I want to bring out here is that Adam this is showing us that Adam was not designed to accomplish the da- the task that God had assigned him to be fruitful and multiply by himself. That's all it's saying there in one sense. He could not do this by himself. And listen, men and women, we need each other equally. We need each other equally. I know that in the world, there's a lot going on out there uh, to bring c- competition and between the sexes, but in the church, we should really celebrate that. We should celebrate the differences between a man and a woman. And also, I want to point out something here where it says uh, the phrase fit for. I will make him a helper fit for him. And that, word, that phrase fit for means that which is opposite that which corresponds to, that which is on the other side of. It's kind of like Adam is lopsided. And so God creates woman who is similar but different to balance him. And that's something that's, that's um, very important for us to grasp as we move forward in this passage. And so most of us know that Adam, uh, God puts Adam asleep. He takes a rib from his side, and he fashions Eve and brings her to Adam. In verse 23, we read this. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now this is, right here, this is the origin of marriage in the family that was ordained by God. One man married to one woman, united and bonded together as one flesh. And at this time in creation, there was no competition between the sexes. Cooties had not been invented at this point. Uh, the phrase, Boys drool, and girls. See, who taught us that? We didn't have to be taught that, did we? But I promise you, that's not what was going on in the garden. Eve didn't feel the need to prove herself, uh, to try to be a man. She joyfully and willfully sought to glorify God by coming alongside of Adam to help him to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. So she honored Adam, she encouraged Adam, she respected Adam as her husband, And Adam, on the other hand, joyfully and willfully sought to glorify God by honoring Eve, by loving her, by cherishing her, by nourishing her, by serving her above himself. And for a season, we don't know how long, Scripture doesn't tell us how long, but for a season, Adam and Eve accepted and submitted to God's invitation to be his image bearers the way that he created it to be. They they literally had this marriage that was made in paradise until we come to chapter three, and this is our second C this morning: corruption, mankind's willful rebellion, also known as the fall, and this is where mankind deliberately rejected God's authority and His established order. And if you've ever wondered, if you've ever wondered why the world is in the chaotic mess it is in. If you've ever wondered why we have doctors and lawyers and law enforcement and counselors to aid us in our brokenness. If if you've ever wondered why life often feels like a roller coaster ride gone bad. This is the chapter where it all began. This is the origin of the fall of man. Let's look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Scripture reveals that the serpent, also known as Satan, was a created spirit being who he once held a a position of authority among the angels, and it's believed that he was responsible for taking a third of the angels in rebellion against God, and eventually they were kicked out of heaven. In Matthew 13:19, Jesus refers to him as the evil one. In John 8:44, Jesus says he was a murderer. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. He he is the father of lies. And listen, he hates God. He hates God, and so he appears in the garden with one purpose in mind. It's not us primarily. It's it's rather to attack the name and the glory of God through us, to mar the image of God in his crowning jewel, in in mankind. And that was his purpose then, and that is his purpose today. And as we continue reading in verse 1, it says that he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, I want us to just stop here in this section of the passage, and I want us to look at Satan's attack. He has a strategy. It's found in in this passage right here. Um, And the the attack always begins with the attack of God's word. And on your notes in the back, there's there's four D's that I want you to fill in here. The first is he attacks God's word by bringing doubt. Notice he said, did God really say? I mean, is that really what God meant? Secondly, he, he brings denial. You will not surely die. There will be no consequences for you rejecting God's established order, disobeying God for sinning, and then he, uh, which leads to desire. Verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. This is a warning not to elevate our feelings and our desires above God's word. Because our desires can often be misleading, and they often can lead us astray. And I like what the late German theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, speaking of desire. He said, "...with irresistible power..." Desire seizes mastery over the flesh. Joy in God is extinguished in us, and we seek all our joy in the creature. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality, and only desire for the creature is real. Now, notice this. He says, Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God the question presents itself, is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. So we see here that doubting leads to denying, which arouses desires and eventually brings about disobedience. It says that they ate. And 1 Timothy 2.14 teaches us that Eve was deceived in this interaction, but not Adam. Adam knew exactly what he was doing when he ate of the fruit. And it, it seems like it wasn't enough for Adam to be placed in a position of being over God's creation. And just like Satan, he wanted to be God. And that is he wanted to set the rules. He wanted to be in charge. He didn't want to have anyone above him telling him what to do. And he wanted to be the one to decide what is right and what is wrong. And so when we choose to rebel, uh, and so he chose to rebel and and to disobey God. Romans 5.12 says that uh, sin came into the world through one man, speaking of Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And so when Adam rejected God's word and his order, he he shattered the mirror, the image of God within us, and he opened the door for sin to bring in death and, and misery. And for the first time, that which was natural for Adam and Eve became un. Natural, and that is to serve and glorify God and to love one another. It became a struggle and drudgery. And have you ever felt shame about anything? Um, Shame and fear came into the world at this time, and they felt distant from God. Did you know that you're not ever really distant from God? God is everywhere. Now, you may feel distant from God, but he's always there. But it's because of sin that we feel that we're not aware of his presence at times. And so instead of running to the one who could save them, when God comes down into the garden to walk in the cool of the day, it says that they hid themselves and they attempted uh, to cover themselves with and their nakedness with the works of their hands. That's, have you ever done that in your own life? Try to make up for your sin by your works. That's what every other religion does, is try to get back to God with the work of our hands. They blew it, Adam and Eve blew it, and they thought, what do we gotta do? We've gotta do something. But the amazing thing about it is that in verse nine, God pursues them, and he asks a question. And the question is this, where are you? Adam, where are you? Why are you you hiding from me? I think it's safe to say that God is in one sense saying, you know, I know what you did. Why are you hiding from me? I want you to know I still want you. I still love you. And, you know, there are consequences for our sins. We need to, we don't want to be soft on that. There are consequences that come from sin. Adam's work was now filled with thorns and thistles, and Eve would experience increased pains and child labor. And then there would be struggle between mankind. But I don't want us to miss the point that God's desire for mankind was for them to return to him. His first desire was not to destroy us. It's for us to return to him. And we're going to see that we see that in this passage because before he he banishes them from the garden of paradise, before he does that, he does something amazing by unveiling a hope-filled promise as he's judging the serpent. It's found in uh, chapter 3, verse 15. And this is the first time that the scarlet letter I'm sorry. The scarlet thread that runs throughout the scripture is is revealed. God says to the serpent, "I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." This is the the heart of God, right here. Although. Mankind rejected God's gracious invitation to be his representatives on earth. Instead of immediately judging us and casting us into the lake of fire, he pursues us, he pursues humanity with his perfect redemptive plan of salvation. And what he's saying here in verse 15 is that through Eve, the woman, the Messiah, a Savior, the Christ will come through him and he will redeem, he will restore, he will renew all things including the image of God that was shattered. And he will accomplish this by bruising or crushing the head of the serpent. And it will cost him his life. His heel will be bruised when he dies on the cross for our sins. But he will also overthrow death three days later at his resurrection. And so this promise right here reveals the big picture of the Bible. Now, it might not... See the entire gospel here, but this is the beginning of God revealing his big picture for us to bring creation back into God's perfect order. That's the mission of Jesus when he died for the sins of his people, when he conquered death by rising from the dead. And right here, God is once again bringing an invitation to us. And he's saying for us to trust him, to return to him and to look forward to the coming Messiah. That's an invitation right here that God is giving Adam and Eve. But as we move forward a few hundred years, and we go all the way to chapter 6, instead of accepting God's invitation to return to him, chapter 6, verse 5 says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of, his, of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Which brings us to our third C, which is the catastrophe, God's righteous judgment, also known as the flood. Verse 7 of chapter 6 says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and Birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. So instead of accepting God's offer of salvation, instead of waiting for the coming Messiah uh, that's prophesied in chapter 3, verse 15, mankind as a whole rejects this promise and turns away, and wickedness begins to increase on the face of the earth. But listen, here's the good news. God always has a remnant, a, a small group that he has that, that are set apart for him. And look at verse 8. It says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, why did Noah find favor in the eyes of the, of the Lord? Was it because he was better than everybody else? Was it because he was sinless? It's not because he was sinless, because he had the sin nature of Adam. He struggled with sin, and... Um, It's not because uh, he never sinned. When he gets off the ark, later on in chapter 8 or chapter 9, we find out that Noah gets drunk. Um, So we know it's not because he was sinless. The reason that God's favor was upon him was not because he was sinless, but because he was full of faith. We know this because in Hebrews 11, verse 7, it says, By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And you know, a lot of times when it comes to Noah's ark, we can be tempted to kind of romanticize it. It's that uh, picture that we want to paint on our newborn's wall, you know, put the crib next to it with the smi- everybody smiling and, and happy. You may have that. and so, Okay, yeah. I shouldn't have used that as an example. We had it too, okay? So it's, uh, I'm not judging you. (laughs) But sometimes we can romanticize something that is meant to be a horrific reminder that although God is kind and merciful and slow to wrath and forgiving, because he is a holy and righteous God, There comes a time when God says enough to sin. And what he does is he closes the door of the ark and then he brings about his righteous judgment. Luke 17, verse 26 says, "Just and this is Jesus speaking, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying And being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. The ark is a picture that we need to see and a foreshadowing of Jesus. And just as all who believed the message of of Noah, it sounds like Noah preached during that time. Everyone who believed the message, the righteous message, that judgment was coming upon the earth, everyone who believed it and responded by getting into the ark. It wasn't enough to go, oh yeah, I believe that a flood's coming. You had to get into the ark. Just as that, uh, they responded and were saved. In the same way, we who believe that the judgment of God is coming, we who believe in Jesus, who is the greater ark, will be saved, just as Noah and those who entered into the ark. And so listen, if you believe in Jesus, if you've entered the ark, we need to be like little Noahs in our, this generation, pleading with this generation to believe God's word and to flee from the coming judgment by entering into or fleeing to Jesus. Because only in Christ can we find salvation and so this is, this is really heavy stuff that I'm, I know that I'm going over here. Um, uh, Forty days later, uh, 40 days and for 40 nights, it rained until the highest mountains were covered with water. And in verse uh, 22 of chapter 7, it says, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Only Noah was left and those who, who were with him in the ark That is, those who believed and responded to God's message. And so after the waters subsided and Noah and his family leave the ark, God once again gives mankind an invitation. And he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Do you think they listened? Well, uh, chapter 11, which is the final C, Uh, confusion. God's merciful dispersion. This is also known as the Tower of Babel. Once again, we're going to see that man rejects God's word. In chapter 11, verse 4, it says, Then they, speaking of the people, said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves. That's the heart of man, a fallen man, that is, and then they clearly say, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. God told us to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Let's, let's stay together so we don't have to do that. And once again, we're seeing that creation's desire is to be independent from God. And that is, again, to set, its, set the rules, to be in charge, and to determine what is right from wrong. And in God's mercy... To keep mankind from destroying themselves, God comes down and confuses their languages. This is where different languages began. This is the origin of different languages. And because they couldn't understand each other, they got into the people groups that could understand each other. And then they spread out and did what God had commanded them, originally had commanded them to do. And this is where the origin of nations begins. Next week... We're going to be looking. We're going to be zeroing in on the nation of Israel, and as I'm closing this morning, um, I just want to point out this pattern that we've already seen in the first eleven chapters that we're going to see throughout the entire Bible, and that is this. In chapter one, we see that God comes to mankind with an invitation, and He says, "You know what? I want you uh, to be my image bearers. I want you to." represent me. I want you to be, fill the earth with a, of millions of images that when people look at that person, they go, that's what God is like in human form. We're not gods, but we are his uh, reflection of who God is. He comes to mankind with that invitation. And what, is, what does mankind do? No, I don't want that. I want my own way, rejects God, suffers the consequences and what does God do? He pursues mankind and offers mercy and kindness and grace to them so, with hopes that they will return. That's the heart of God. This is the pattern that we're going to see throughout the Scriptures, where God wants us to return to him through Jesus, to know him, to enjoy him, and to make him known. And so I want to end with this question this morning. And it's the same question that God asked Adam in the garden. And that is, this morning, right where you are, where are you? Where are you with God this morning? And what I'm asking is, are you in fellowship with him? You may be his child because you've accepted Christ, but let me ask you this, are you in fellowship with him this morning? And That means, are you enjoying God in your life? If you really back out and look at your life, are you enjoying him? Are you making him known? And also, maybe you've never come to God and you've lived your life independent of him, but this morning you're hearing his voice and him calling saying, come to me. I love you. I want to have fellowship with you. I want to forgive you. I want to cleanse you of your sins through Jesus Christ. I want to encourage you to respond to the voice of him this morning. Wherever you are at, I want to encourage you to come to Jesus and to know God.